In aviation, we refer to that as pilot error. And all the way in and all the way back from that uh, church service, I remember talking to my camp counselor and asking him, how can I know that I'm saved? How can I know that I'm saved? And that night, July 10th, 1974, I asked the Lord Jesus Christ to be my Savior. I, I just wanted to be a Christian. I wanted that God would reach down and, and do something with my life. That next year, I went back to the public school, and there'd be days I'd try to be a witness with my friends, and I would carry my Bible with me to school. And I can remember my friends would say things like, are you a Bible salesman, Tim? Are you going to be one of those Jesus freaks who sits in the lunchroom, doesn't talk to us? What's going on? And for years, I tried to be a witness to my friends, and with some success, but after a year's time, I went to my dad and I said, Dad, I would like to go to a Christian school this fall. My dad, who was Roman Catholic, said, that is great. And then he listed all of the Catholic schools in the St. Paul, Minneapolis area he would send me to. Send you to Creighton, send you to St. Anne's, uh, Hill Murray. Which one do you want to go to? I said, Dad, you don't understand. I would like to go to Fourth Baptist Christian Day School in Minneapolis. And he said, oh, if that's what you want, I can't pay for that. You'll be on your own. And so all I heard him say was, yes, you can go to a Christian school. I went out that summer. I got a job, enrolled in Fourth. And every single month when I was at Fourth, when the bill came, it came with my name on it. I wanted to be in a Christian school. The next year, uh, Sue and I both graduated from Rosemount Baptist Schools. Then we went down to Bob Jones University. I must say you're looking at somebody who's pretty gifted. It took me seven years to get a four-year degree at Bob Jones. (laughs) I finally graduated, magna cum It was so bad, we had this dean, dean of the College of Arts and Sciences. He was in Adolf Hitler's army, foot soldier in Hitler's army. And I had him for an orientation class, had him for a philosophy class, had him for a German class. Anybody would be able to speak German, it'd be him. And after watching me walk around that campus for seven years, it came graduation day and they said, what you do is you walk across the platform, go to your dean, he'll hand you your diploma, walk off the platform and find your seat. And after watching me walk walk around that campus for seven years, I walk on the platform walk up to him and look at him, and he said, Vel, I never thought I would see the day. I thought, all right, we'd encourage the troops on the way out of here. And then I taught in South Bend, Indiana, taught there for three years, and then the Lord moved us up here to Michigan. I must say, I wasn't born in Michigan, but I got here as soon as I could. I love living in Michigan. love working with Max and the Christian schools that we have. And as part of it, Part of my responsibilities working with Max is going to Lansing on a regular basis. We have a full-time legislature. meets 40 weeks out of the year. We have term limits in the state. How many of you think all of our politicians are crooks? Come on, be honest. You can be in church. You can be honest. Most of them. I think every politician should get two terms. One in Congress and one in jail. <laughs> if we don't know what it's for, they do. But usually most Wednesdays I'm in Lansing uh, with our elected officials. About four or five times a year I'm in Washington, D.C., meeting with our elected officials there. And it's a responsibility. It's something that I would just ask that you would pray about and something that you would just place on your regular prayer list. Uh, They consider me the max missionary, the responsibilities that I have. uh, Just um, They're of the Lord, and I'm very thankful for them. But I feel like our religious liberty is something that's important and we need to, to guard and protect. 
So that brings us to our message for this afternoon. If you have your Bibles, will you please turn with me to the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 4. Out of respect to God's Word, let's all stand together. What I'd like us to do today, if you, did anybody here not get a half sheet of paper? Everybody have one? Joshua chapter 4 is on the back. I'd like us to do a responsive reading today. Need a sheet. You got your sheet? If we go up there, it'll, we'll all be on the same page there. Let me do this. I'll read, the, I'll read all the odd number verses, and I'll let you read the even-numbered verses off the sheet. Joshua chapter 4, we read, the, read these words. And it came to pass, when all the people were clean, passed over Jordan, that the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying... And command ye them, saying, Take ye hence out of the midst of Jordan, out of the place where the priest's feet stood firm, twelve stones. And ye shall carry them over with you, and leave them in the lodging place where ye shall lodge this night. And Joshua said unto them, Pass over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of Jordan. And take ye up every man of you a stone upon his shoulder, according unto the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. Then ye shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, and here is our text. These stones shall be for a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time together this afternoon. Father, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for the blessing of being able to come into your very presence. That presence where seraphim cry, holy, holy, holy. Lord, I pray that you would help us, number one, to be faithful to you, to be true to you. But Lord, help us also to be a witness and a testimony in this world in this darkened world that so desperately needs your light, so desperately needs the light of truth. I ask that you would help us now in everything that we say and do. Might you get all the honor and all the glory, and we would thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This is a momentous day in the history of Israel in our text. The children of Israel are about to cross from the east side of the Jordan River over to the west side of the Jordan River, and they're about to start the conquest of the land. But before they start the conquest of the land, the Lord has some instructions for them as they cross the river. Remember that this is flood season for um, the land, the area of Palestine. The Jordan River is probably three times its normal width. So this is a, a seemingly insurmountable problem that they're going to have in crossing the river. And yet the Lord says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to dry up the Jordan River. The bed will become dry. That word dry is used elsewhere in the scriptures for a desert place. The, the, dry, the dry bed of the Jordan River will be exposed to you. But the Bible says an amazing thing. It says the waters of the Jordan stacked up like a heap. And what that meant is the waters of the Jordan kept flowing, but they would flow and just stop and flow and stop. So as the children of Israel... Crossed across, walked across this dry bed, they could see this wall of water right here. Can you imagine that scene in your mind? Walking across the dry bed of the Jordan River, they might as well have placed a wet paint sign on that wall of water. What do you think every kid did when they walked by it? Ran their hands into it? The braver ones may stop and put their hand in and pull it out. 
It was wet, and the water's stacked up like that. It's flowing and stopped, growing with every passing moment. And they could look in this amazing, God-given aquarium, see the fish in there, see everything that's in there, and realize this is miraculous. And what the Lord instructs them to do is when they get on the other side of the Jordan River, they wanted one representative from every single tribe to pick up a stone so large they had to place it on their shoulder. And those 12 representatives would get over to the west side of the Jordan River. They would stack those stones up, and those stones would be a memorial so that in the future, when parents are traveling with their children, remember taking vacation with your kids? Remember what that was like? Are we there yet? Are we going to stop and eat? Can we stop? i got to stop. Remember what that was like? Everything. So that children, when they're traveling with their parents, they get to say, wait a second, what is this stack of stones here for? What is this all about? And the parents could say, this is a teaching moment. You see those stones there? Every single one of those stones came from that river over there. The Jordan River, it was three times its normal width. It was at flood stage. And God miraculously stopped that river. It stacked up like a heap. And we took those stones out for a memorial to how great our God is. We serve an awesome God. And it was a memorial for the children of Israel. Now, I went to school when you would hear from the instructors that all of our founding fathers, and tell me if you've ever heard anything like this, all of our founding fathers were atheists, agnostics, or deists. Atheists, they didn't didn't believe in God. Agnostics, they didn't know if they could know truth. Or if they had any sort of worldview at all, they thought God is just a great clockwinder, um, detached, unconcerned about the daily affairs that happen here on earth. There's never any need to pray to a God like that because he couldn't answer your prayers if he wanted to. And I remember hearing that from my professors, and sadly, I can remember saying some of those things when I was in the classroom, not having studied their lives as thoroughly as I should have. And so I would go to Washington, D.C., and I would um, spend time looking at the monuments. I would spend time looking at the manuscripts that we've been given, the men, the moments of American history. And I remember being in Washington, D.C., and looking up at a couple of the buildings and thinking, there's a verse on that building. Wait a second. If all of our founding fathers were atheists or agnostics, what is there a verse? What's a Bible verse doing on this building? And it dawned on me after a very short period of time that probably those buildings are telling a different story than the secularists are telling. So I wanted to put this presentation together. And I remember it was 9-10-2001, the day before the world changed forever. I was in Washington, D.C. I wanted to get into the Capitol building to take some of the pictures that you're about to see today. And some of the pictures are in places where you just can't easily get to. So I remember asking the sergeant of arms if I could walk around the Capitol and take pictures. And he said, what would you do with them? And I said, well, I'd like to put together a presentation and just make it available for people to see about the heritage that we have of the building. And so he did something that was amazing. He wrote on the back of his business card, let Tim take pictures in the Capitol building. And I was able to go to places that today are off limits that you can't get to. And it just had unfettered access to everything in the Capitol. The next day, 9-11 happened. I was in Washington, D.C. We were getting ready to walk into the White House, and we were told that the White House was closed. I remember moving away from the White House and walking up Constitution Avenue and looking across the mall of Constitution Avenue, 
And looking at the Pentagon building and seeing it engulfed in, in a gray, yellowish gray smoke, just realizing, you know, our world has changed, but there's some things that haven't changed. The story we're supposed to tell hasn't changed. So I want you to come with me on a trip in your mind. But I'm going to, I'm going to show you buildings in Washington, D.C., that many of you have seen. If you've taken tours, you've seen them. But I want us to take a look at what is there. Now, it's kind of interesting. I, I do this presentation. Um, it, it's on a flash drive. And every single computer has a different form of PowerPoint or whatever. And I just noticed when I was sitting down, it should be our story in stones. But I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. Great metaphor. You can see the stones. So why would you say the word stones? It's already there. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Only two nations in the history of the world have claimed that verse for themselves. Old Testament Israel and the United States. Now, July 3rd, this year, atheists sued to have the Declaration of Independence removed from public viewing because it's too religious. It has what Thomas Jefferson talks about. All men are endowed by their creator and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What Jefferson is saying is that our rights as an American do not come from man, but God gives us those. And then he talks about the laws of nature and nature's God. And then he talks about with a firm reliance upon providence, we mutually pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And they said that's way too religious. So this is what they said. Here's the atheist speaking. As long as there remains any reference to God of any kind in a public building, especially within that outdated, wrinkled up piece of paper showcased in the Capitol, there it will remain as a monument to ignorance, tyranny, and oppression of everyday Americans. In its current form, think about it. The Declaration of Independence is our birth certificate. Could you imagine going to somebody and saying, you know what, your birth certificate in its current form needs to be revised. No, there's nothing wrong with the birth certificate. In its current form, the Declaration of Independence is by far the biggest threat to our liberties. Oh, I don't know, I'm kind of opinionated. I think maybe the ACLU might threaten our liberties just a little bit. There may be a religion of peace out there that could be threatening our liberties just a little bit. There is no place for it in a truly free and modern society. Really? We're going to go back and rewrite all this. Well, Franklin Jameson, curator of the National Archives, said, Of all the means of estimating American character, the pursuit of religious history is most complete. Now think about this. If you have the History Channel, you can watch the History Channel, and you will see programs on uh, the, the discovery of America, westward expansion, the Civil War, World War I, World War II, the Great Depression. When was the last time you watched the History Channel and saw a program on the First Great Awakening, the life of Jonathan Edwards? When was the last time you saw a program about George Whitfield, John and Charles Wesley, a program about Billy Sunday, the evangelist that we've had in this country, the missionary movement that since 1900, more missionaries have been sent worldwide by the United States of America than all the other nations and all the other centuries combined. And then Franklin Jameson says that's the most complete way to discover American history. 
Whenever I take a group of folks to Washington, D.C., one of the places on the trip that we always go to is Arlington National Cemetery. It puts the whole trip in perspective. As you leave the visitor center and you're going to walk up the hill, and you can go to the um, left as you walk up the hill, and you can go to the tomb of the soldier known to God. Do you know that when the monument was dedicated, it was called the tomb of the soldier known to God? But today, because we're a secular society, that's a little bit too too religious, and so they call it the unknown soldier. Really? I think God knows who's in there. This is what that, this sign says. It says, Welcome to Arlington National Cemetery, our nation's most sacred shrine. Then at the very bottom it says, Please remember, these are hallowed grounds. Sacred shrine. Hallowed grounds. Those are terms you don't hear about our politicians talking about in society. For me, it's just a visual. In every direction where you look, simple white markers with crosses or stars of David, adding up to just a tiny fraction of the price that's been paid for our freedom. For some of those who rest in Arlington, this is one of the views that they would have seen. This is a Higgins boat landing at D-Day, 1944. In 2002, Sue and I stood up on these hills right here and looked down on this. This photograph is actually kind of an optical illusion in that when you look at it, these soldiers are getting off this Higgins boat they have about 75 yards of open water they've got to traverse to get to the, to the shore. Then once they get to shore, there's almost 200 yards of open beach, subject to German heavy artillery fire, light artillery fire. I have this photograph hanging up in my office. I never look at that without thinking. The average age of the person getting off that Higgins boat is 21 years old. Any one of them would trade the day they're about to have for any day I have to have. It helps to put things in perspective. One writer said, Freedom is not a natural state, otherwise more people would be free. Tyranny, oppression, dictatorship, and denial of human rights are the norm for much of the planet. Mankind's lower nature dictates that far too many seek to reduce others to servitude in order to elevate themselves. Driving by Arlington National Cemetery, I'm reminded of the cost of freedom. Those who sacrificed everything invested in your family and mine so that we can live our lives where we choose to live them and worship where and however we please. These are freedoms most of the world can only dream about. General Patton said it's foolish and wrong to mourn the men who died. Rather, we should thank God that such men lived. If you go to a military funeral and the soldier was a believer, oftentimes during the ceremony, you will hear the pastor give this invocation, quoting John chapter 15, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. At the tomb of the soldier known to God, every half hour and every hour on the hour, there's a changing of the guard. It's a solemn ceremony. It's an amazing ceremony. Very reverential, very proper. In 2002, this uh, young lady right here was allowed the privilege of laying the wreath at the tomb of the, of the soldier known to God. She's a Mac student. This is the wreath that she laid there. Franklin Roosevelt said, He stands in an unbroken line of patriots who have dared to die that freedom might live. William Gladstone, Prime Minister of England, said, Show me the manner in which a nation cares for its dead, and I will measure with mathematical exactness the tender mercies of its people, their respect for the laws of the land, and their loyalty to high ideals. As you look at the tomb, 
I want you to see what's inscribed on the front of this. It's an amazing statement by a nation giving acknowledgement to someone greater than ourselves. If you look at the tomb, this is what it says. Here rests in honored glory an American soldier known but to God. Now think about that. That's not the term, that's not the words of a nation trying, trying to think of something appropriate to say at a very difficult time. What that is, is that's a statement by a nation saying, we as a nation know the God who knows who the soldier is that's in that tomb. And for three generations, any time a mother lost her son to battle and that son's body did not return home, she could comfort herself with the fact that maybe it's my son who's being guarded in the tomb of the the soldier known to God. Psalm 22 says, All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. All the kindreds of the nation shall worship before thee. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is none else. I am God, there is none like me. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands. John Adams said, facts are stubborn things. Everything that I show you, I will show you exactly what building to look at, where the street is, uh, where the monument is, and what we're looking at. Because you and I don't have the privilege of making things up as we go along. We're called to a higher standard, the truth. So at the Capitol building, uh, this is a photograph that was taken by a Mac student from Bethany, as a matter of fact. It took um, first place, best in show, as I remember. And I did to him what I do to all the Mac students when they do something amazing. I said, can I have that? And he gave it to me. And it's just an incredible picture. I like the way the flag is unfurled in the foreground. The clouds look like they were just painted over it. Let's go to the Capitol building. Inside the Capitol building, there's paintings all around the rotunda showing moments in American history. This is called the Embarkment of the Pilgrims. It's a painting that shows them they're in Delft, Holland. They're on the Speedwell. They're about to leave Holland and travel to England where they'll meet up with the Mayflower. They're going to go out to sea for two days and the Speedwell is not seaworthy. They come back in. They try to repair it. They think they've got it repaired. They go back out to sea again. And the Speedwell is still not seaworthy. So they come back. Those who want to go, they all crowd onto the Mayflower and they head to the New World. If you go to Washington, D.C., and you take one of the state-sponsored tours, the Capitol tour guides, you'll be able to tell them right away, they all wear red coats. In American history, does the term red coat mean anything? So when you take a tour with the red coats, and they come to this painting, it's often great to stop them and say, wait a second here, what's this painting about? And sometimes, and usually they know. They'll say it's the embarkment of the pilgrims are on the speedwell. Sometimes they said they're on the Mayflower. They're not on the Mayflower. But I want you to take a look. There's some things that are in this painting that are just absolutely fascinating. Number one, there's women and children in the painting showing the importance of the family to the pilgrims. They're having a prayer meeting. They're on the speedwell. They are about to pray and ask for God's providential care. You've got this young man right here. His back is to us. He's facing west. He's looking at a rainbow, which is what the west is is perceived to be to them, hearkening back to... Uh, the book of Genesis, a promise of deliverance and protection, not being able to be destroyed like they had been in the past. But you and I look back on 1620 and we say, yeah, 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 I know, I know. The pilgrims, Thanksgiving, Squanto and everything. 
1620, they're looking ahead. They have no idea what's about to happen to them. And so the painter put something into the painting to show us that God was with them in this undertaking. Look in the sail. I don't the lights I don't know, can we see that? Is that okay? God with us. God protected them. God providentially sustained them. When they left, they're about to travel three thousand miles of ocean having no idea what could possibly happen to them. Or even if they would be massacred or, you know, like, like the lost Virginia colony of, of the early days. And so God was with them. When you take the tour with the Redcoats and you ask them, what's that book that they're holding there? Because remember, we're told they're all secular, atheists and agnostics. They would like to say, well, it's a Sunday edition of the New York Times. It's a Detroit City phone book. That's what they'd want to say. But the reality of it is they will grudgingly and of necessity say, it's a Bible. Really? Is it just a Bible? Let's take a look. It's not just a Bible. It's the New Testament of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't you love how a group of atheists come to America with the New Testament of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Contrast between North and South America is South America was settled by the Spanish who went there in search of gold. North America is settled by the pilgrims who come here in search of God. Another one of the paintings that's there, this is called The Presentation of the Declaration of Independence. Now, we know that this painting is actually historical fiction and that in Carpenter's Hall, not all 56 of the delegates were in there at one time walking up signing the document. John Hancock signed it on July 4th, 1776. They all took copies of the document back to their colonies with them and they would go back to their respective colonies and they would say, this is what we passed in the Continental Congress. Are we supposed to sign this? And as soon as they got the green light to sign it, they would go back to Philadelphia where the document is and then they would sign the document. Some of the delegates signed it as early as July 1776. Some signed it as late as October 1776. But they weren't all in there at one time walking up and signing the document. They would do it in smaller groups. You know, Sometimes there'd be just a few people in there. Sometimes there'd be 20 to 30 people in there. Not all 56 were there. But what David McCullough says is this painting is accurate because their faces are accurate. They're accountable to us for what they did. So I want us to take a look at a couple of things in this painting. First thing I want you to see, this is the drafting committee. You've got Ben Franklin, the elder statesman there. Thomas Jefferson, the primary author, the Declaration of Independence flames with his eloquence. You've got John Adams, the primary critic of Jefferson's writing. A tension develops between them at this time. Uh, you've got Roger Sherman. Roger Sherman of Connecticut is the forgotten founder. He is so devout, he's such a godly man that when the secularists read the writings of Roger Sherman, they say, I have no idea what he's talking about. Therefore, he needs to be forgotten. And then the man right in the middle is Robert Livingston. Robert Livingston is fascinating because he's on the drafting committee. He works the entire time putting this thing together with Jefferson. He takes it back to New York and he says, here's the document that we worked on. What do you think about it? And they say, it's absolutely wonderful. Oh, by the way, 
you're not going back to Philadelphia. We're sending somebody in your place. So he does all this work on the document. His signature's not on the document. So you've got Livingston, Jefferson, uh, Adams, Sherman, and Franklin. Now, during the time of the writing of the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson would write and Adams would correct some things. And the way that he corrected things irritated Jefferson. He would do certain things, and, and there was a tension that was developed between them during this time of the drafting of the Declaration of Independence. And the painter Trumbull memorialized the tension between them in that he put something into the painting that showed that maybe there was a little bit of difficulty. I'm hoping we'll be able to see this in here as light as it is. But if you look very closely, you can see that Thomas Jefferson is stepping on John Adams' foot. As if to say, keep your opinions to yourself. You know, I'll get this. It's all good. If you and I went up and down the streets of the city here, and we were just to knock on doors, and we were to say, can you please name for me, I'm taking a survey, can you name for me three of our founding fathers? Who do you think they would mention? Who's the three that typically come to mind? Jefferson, Hancock, who else? Washington, who else? Ben Franklin, right. Hancock, that, that one, it, it's usually unique. It, he does get in there in like the top five. But always, without exception, in the first few founding fathers they always think about is Jefferson, Franklin, and Washington. And I would submit that the seculars have done an incredible job because if they can get people to only think about those three founding fathers, then they can paint the rest of them with a broad brush and say, you see, they all had the worldview of Jefferson and Franklin. And if you just casually look at their lives, you can say, well, you know, I guess they weren't all that religious. But when you study their life, their life actually comes to a different conclusion than what the casual observer would say they were all secular. They were amazing in their, um, in their worldview in that when they went to do something in their official capacity for this country, they had a worldview that, that was just incredible in that they were very respectful of religious things, respectful of spiritual things, respectful of liberty of conscience. But that being what it is, there's 56 signers to the Declaration. And so I just want us to take a look at just a couple other than uh, Franklin Jefferson, Washington, and Sign. But let's take a look here. I want us to look at this guy right here. This is Benjamin Rush. Under the man with the Quaker hat. Off his elbow. This, Benjamin Rush is one of the youngest signers of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, an amazing study. Uh, he is a Surgeon General of the Continental Army. He is a founder of the American Bible Society, Philadelphia Tract Society, Philadelphia Sunday School Movement. We have Sunday School today in the States because of the work of people like Benjamin Rush and others who said there ought to be a Bible training time as well as a Bible preaching time. Benjamin Rush's signature is on the document right here, right next to John Hancock. In 1830, a tract is published that's written by Rush and this is what the tract says. Now remember, he signed the Declaration of Independence. And this is a treatise that he's writing. It's called The Defense of the Use of the Bible in Schools. And he says, before I state my arguments, I shall assume the five following propositions. 
He says, number one, Christianity is the only true and perfect religion. Come on, don't sugarcoat it. What are you trying to say? <clears throat> what he's trying to say is that Christianity is the only true and perfect religion. Everything else is a false religion. He says that a better knowledge of this religion is to be acquired by the reading of the Bible than in any other way. That the Bible contains more knowledge necessary to man in his present state than any other book in the world. That knowledge is most durable and religious instruction most useful when imparted in early life. And then lastly, he says that the Bible, when not read in schools, is seldom read in any subsequent period of life. When you go to the Capitol building in the Congressional Prayer Room, it's a room that you can only get in there if your congressman takes you or a congressman takes you. A couple of years ago, Congressman Louis Gohmert from Texas took me into the prayer room. I took this photograph, and it's amazing. You've got our first president in stained glass, kneeling in prayer with the verse surrounding his head, Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. What a tremendous testimony as a nation saying that we are a nation that wants to be that one nation under God, that we are dependent on God. This is where the Speaker of the House sits in the, in the uh, House of Representatives. And you have, when the President of the United States gives the State of the Union address, he will stand there. Can I show you what our national theologians at ABC, CBS, and NBC won't show you? If they would just expand the television view just a little bit wider, this is what you would see while the President of the United States is giving his State of the Union address. Why do you think they don't show that? Think there might be an agenda someplace that that doesn't fit the template that they were all secular, therefore it needs to be forgotten? Every single state can uh, give two statues for the edification of the Capitol building. This was a statue of Pastor Peter Muhlenberg. Pastor Muhlenberg pastored in Woodstock, Virginia. He was a pacifist. He never felt it was right to raise a sword or lift a musket against the government of the United, uh, the Crown of England, excuse me, until he saw what the British troops were doing in the colonies. So on January 21st, 1776, he got up in his pulpit and he said, please open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, that famous passage that says, to everything there is a season and a time, a time to be born and a time to plant, a time to pluck up, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which has been planted a time for peace and a time for war. And he did something unusual. He asked the congregation, please bow your heads and close your eyes. And his church members thought, this is unusual. Usually, pastor preaches a sermon before he gives an invitation, but dutifully we'll do that. So everybody bowed their heads, closed their eyes. While their heads were bowed, Pastor Muhlenberg took off his black robe that all of the pastors wore back in that day. And under his robe was his uniform of the Virginia militia. When you take a look at this statue, you can see that his sword is right here. The appellate's on his shoulder. His uniform is right here. The black robe is falling behind his shoulders. Now, I've been on tours with the Redcoats. And sometimes they brush right past this and they say, we don't have time to talk. We don't have time to mention this. And they'll say, we've got a big story to tell and a short time to tell it. But really? You don't have time for that? Can I just tell you what's happening in this statue? 
And it's amazing because if they let me tell one of the red coats what's going on, it's always incredible watching their expression. They start out and you say, he's a pastor in Western Virginia, in Woodstock, Virginia, and they're smiling. And you know what they're thinking. How can you possibly know this? He's from Michigan. Then you get to the point where he's in his church and he has a Bible open to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And then you, you show them the statue and they say, he's taking off his robe. He's resigning his church. He's going to form a regiment of the Virginia militia from men from his own church. And by the time you get through telling the story, they're like this. You know what they're thinking? They're thinking that story cannot possibly be true. Because if that story were true, somebody would have told us, right? You don't keep a story that good from people unless it doesn't fit the template that they were all secular, that they were all atheists. As Pastor Muhlenberg marched to the back of his church, declaring to all, if you do not choose to be involved, if you do not fight to protect your liberties, there will soon be no liberties to protect. Thomas Jefferson said, a morsel of genuine history is a thing so rare as to be always valuable. So we're going to leave the Capitol building. We're going to walk across the east lawn of the Capitol, across First Street, and right across First Street, This is the Temple of Molech. I mean, the Supreme Court building. (laughs) And what I want you to do is I want you to look at at the apex right here, the pediment right here. And this is the west side of the Supreme Court. We're going to walk down 1st Street, down Capitol Avenue, and we're going to get to 2nd Street, and we're going to look at the exact same pediment, but only on the east side of the Capitol building. I want you to notice what's there. It's a statue of Moses with two open tablets representing the Ten Commandments. Now, as you can kind of tell, I'm more or less a pretty shy, bashful, introverted type of person. And I used to have this photograph, but I was on the street looking up at it, and I really didn't like the angle of it. And there's a house on 2nd Street right across right across from the Supreme Court building. So on one of my tours to D.C., I went and knocked on the door, lady came to the door and I said, explained to her who I was, and I said, could you help me out? Could I please go up to your second story window and take a picture of Moses from a direct on angle? And she said, and I quote, that's who that is. I've lived here for years and didn't know who those guys were over there. So it's possible to see this every single day and not see it. Having eyes, not being able to see Inside the Supreme Court, there's a stone relief showing great lawgivers of the past. This is Hammurabi, the uh, world's first emperor, gave a law code that said all men are equal under the law. This is Moses with an open tablet of the second, uh, open second uh, tablet, man's responsibility to man, commandments 6 through 10. And then just as you go into the Supreme Court chamber, there's two huge oak doors there, and there's panels on the doors. And this is a panel that's on the chamber, uh, on the door going into the main chamber of the Supreme Court. A couple of years ago, uh, 2010 as a matter of fact, there was a school from the western side of the state. I took them on a tour there and I said, I can't stay the whole time. I've got to fly back to Michigan and then over to Wisconsin. I said, but when you go to the Supreme Court, ask the Supreme Court tour guide what this panel represents. Now in iconography, two tablets, Roman numerals 1 through 5, 6 through 10, always without exception, 
That's the Ten Commandments. Okay? That's what it means. That's the icon for the Ten Commandments. So this school is taking their tour of the Supreme Court building. They come to this door and they ask the tour guide, what does this panel represent? And the Supreme Court tour guide said, oh, that represents the first Ten Amendments to the Constitution. It does if we let them, but the reality of it is it represents something else. This is a trilon uh, near the uh, court building, a district court, and it shows pilgrims praying here, cross, two tablets, a pilgrim seeking that, a dove representing the Holy Spirit, very clear indication of Christian, Judeo-Christian roots there. We're at the Organization of American States building here. You can see the Washington Monument in the background. When you're at the Organization OAS building, there's a garden area that you're standing in. And in the garden area, there's a statue. And if you look very closely, you can see a lion right here, the man in Babylonish garments, holding in his hand, right hand, a scroll. And if you look at the scroll, very clearly it says in Latin, this is the prophet Daniel. And often I've thought, Daniel, you are still in the midst of Babylon today, in the midst of people that don't understand you, that you need to be a witness and a testimony to, that they need to hear the message of righteousness that you have. This is National Archives. Our written treasures are there. You can see the Declaration here, Constitution here, Bill of Rights there. As you stand and get ready to step up these steps to go and see those, there's a brass inlay in the floor. And the brass inlay has two tablets, Roman numerals 1 through 5, 6 through 10, representing the Ten Commandments there. Our written treasures are there. At, at the um, Library of Congress is this original draft of Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. It's in his handwriting. A couple of years ago when I was at the Library of Congress, I asked them if they had this in possession. They said, of course we do. I said, have you ever had it appraised? And they said, amazingly, a couple of years before, somebody like Sotheby's or Lloyd's of London came and appraised this document, the Declaration of Independence in Thomas Jefferson's handwriting. And they said it came back as priceless. Well, it's priceless to us because it shows us what Jefferson is thinking. Let me show you something right here. Jefferson comes to this paragraph right here and he says, we hold these truths to be, and he writes something right there. Jefferson writes, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. Sacred, something coming from God. Undeniable, as obvious as a sunrise in the east. And Jefferson writes, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable, and it's Ben Franklin who crosses out sacred and undeniable and says that's too religious. And it's Franklin who writes in the word self-evident. But think about that. Jefferson believes our rights as an American come from God. The state hasn't given us the rights that we have. We talked about Ben Franklin. The secularists always point to Ben Franklin and they say, you see, he wasn't very religious. But I want you to look. This is the Treaty of Paris. This is the first formal document that the United States enters into with Great Britain, and it's a peace treaty. Uh, John Jay signed right here. John Ad ben Franklin and John Adams signed right there. I want you to see what Franklin signed his name to. This is how the treaty starts out. In the name of the most holy and undivided trinity. The rest of the document just basically says, we won and you lost. 
But as we establish the facts of this treaty, let it be understood that we're writing it in the name of the most holy and undivided Trinity. This is the Washington Monument as seen from the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, When the Washington Monument was built, different states and organizations could donate stones for the building of the monument. If you could still take the elevator up and then walk down the steps down the monument, which you can't, you have to go elevator up and then elevator down, you would see every single one of these stones. This is a stone by the state of Michigan. This one says, from the Sabbath school children of the Methodist E-Church in the city and districts of Philadelphia, a preach gospel, a free press, Washington, we revere his memory. And then look, right in the middle of this stone, there's an open book. Look what the book says. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. John chapter 5. Another one of the stones says, under the auspices of heaven and the precepts of Washington, Kentucky will be the last to give up the union. And ringing these two men, shaking hands, it says, united we stand, divided we fall. Another one of the stones says, the memory of the just is blessed. Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 7. When the Washington Monument was finished, they capped it off with what they thought was the most precious metal they had found up to that time, aluminum. And on the east side of the Washington Monument, the tallest structure in Washington, D.C., every single morning when the sun rises on D.C., the first rays of sunlight hit the east side of the Washington Monument, and this is what it says, Laius Dale. Very simply, it means, praise be to God. Here's the Lincoln Memorial. In this temple, it's in the hearts of the people for whom you saved the Union. The memory of Abraham Lincoln is enshrined forever. Over on the left-hand side of Abraham Lincoln is his second inaugural address, the most theological statement in American history, replete with references to God, direct quotes from the Bible, quoting hymns. It's amazing what he, what's done in this second inaugural address. This is New York Avenue Presbyterian Church where President and Mrs. Lincoln went to church. They sat in the second pew right here. The stained glass window above the pew shows them with Abraham Lincoln, head bowed in prayer. Isn't it amazing? Two of the greatest icons of two of our best presidents, they're bowing in prayer. They're asking God for help. This is the White House. Here are your missionaries to Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom on the Grand River in Lansing, Gomorrah on the Potomac. We're just leaving a meeting that we had in the West Wing with the previous administration. In the White House, over one of the mantles, is part of a letter from John Adams to his wife Abigail. He's living in the White House while they're building it. So you can imagine if you've ever been in a new home or new building construction, the smell of the fresh paint, the sound of the carpenters, the the smell of plaster as it's drying the humidity in the place from all this paint and plaster. And John Adams writes back to his wife, Abigail, who's in Braintree, Massachusetts, and he writes this letter. And this is part of it. He says, I pray heaven to bestow the best of blessings on this house and all that shall hereafter inhabit it. May none but honest and wise men ever rule under this roof. All right, we're at Union Station. We're going out the main doors of Union Station. And just um, outside the main doors is a reproduction of the Liberty Bell, twice the normal size of the Liberty Bell in actuality in Philadelphia. But I want you to notice what verses on the top of the Liberty Bell. It says, Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. Leviticus, excuse me, chapter 25 and verse 10. Now we're looking at the Liberty Bell. We're going to turn around and we're going to look back at Union Station. 
three great stone inscriptions there. Each one has a Bible verse on the bottom. The desert shall rejoice and blossom as a rose. That's from the book of Isaiah. Thou hast put all things under his feet. That's from the book of Psalms. Right in the middle of Union Station, the truth shall make you free. Folks, if we don't tell our story, who will? You know, we can't trust the secularist to tell the story that you and I are supposed to have. This is our story to tell. Like those stories in stones, like the monument that was over here when they crossed the the dry bed of the Jordan River. This is for us to tell our children and our children's children that we have a monument, we have a godly heritage, and it's up for us to tell. Let's tell our story. Let's pray together today. Father, thank you so much for loving us, for your goodness to us, for the blessing that it is to know our story. I pray that you would help us to be faithful and true in telling the story. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor?